0: Welcome to the Restoration Church podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at wwwrestorationlexcom slash this week. Happy Mother's Day to uh, my wife. Is she in here? She, maybe she's doing kids today, wherever she is. Good job. And my mom back here serving as well on the computers, grateful for you guys. Um, I'm very excited about this study. N.T. Wright and Esau Macaulay are two of my favorite scholars and writers. And if you're wanting to dig into just the scriptures and what this means to seek justice together, this is an awesome, awesome, awesome opportunity. I encourage you to do that today. And as we heard our scripture for today earlier, too, you could see that there's not a better opportunity to study it than with the passage we're looking at today, the seventh chapter of Revelation. Last week, if you missed it, we were in Revelation chapter five. We spoke about the, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the only one who is worthy to unfold history, to stand in judgment over creation. The only one who is both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. and The power of the kingdom of God we see in the Lamb is greater than the power of the kingdoms and empires of this world. And as that scene ends, it just erupts in heaven with worship, worship, worship. Now we've made it two chapters later here. And they're still worshiping. They're still going at it because the more we see the unfolding of history, the more we see the worthiness of worship. So I want to look at this here again. Here, look with me on the screen. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now what we're seeing here is a victory procession. This is a victory celebration. Palm branches, they represent the victory in battle. They represent triumph and victory. White robes represent salvation. And we see this picture of this Victory moving forward, but instead of the victories we see around our world where it's nation over nation, this is not one nation or one people over another people. This is the victory of of Jesus, the victory of the Lamb for all peoples, for every tribe and nation and people and language. We see in Revelation 7 that our eternity, our eternity will be filled with diversity and difference. God in Christ is building this new kind of family that transgresses the boundaries of culture, transgresses the boundaries of ethnicity, transgresses the boundaries of nation and language. And think about this, my friends, for the followers of Jesus, where we are at right now, this is the least diverse moment we will ever experience. This life is the least diverse we will ever experience. Because when we get into eternity, it will be an explosion of color and beauty and difference and culture. Because every nation, tribe, and tongue will be worshiping together. This moment we're in, this life we're in, is but a shadow of the beauty that is to come. Those four words, nation, tribe, people, language, speak to the intersections of our identity of our culture. Uh, This word here for nation in the Greek is ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity. It speaks of our biological heritage. It speaks of the kind of people we've come from. It also talks about nation, people, language. Speaking more of our cultural differences within this, I love Dr. Corey Edwards. She breaks this down. She's a sociologist at at, um, Ohio State University. She talks about the differences and how we understand this. First, she says that culture is our normal way of living art, music, food. So you can have a multicultural church and have the same ethnicity. You can have a multi-ethnic church and have one culture. Secondly, she says that ethnicity is the common ancestry in the roots of our identity. Again, that's biological, where we came from, the type of people, the people we have emerged from. What you don't see here, what you don't see here in this framework is the idea of what we know as race. The concept of race as we know it today is not found in the Bible whatsoever. It's not. Race as we know it is a social construct that was developed a long time ago after the scriptures were written, not in the scriptures, in order to create a social hierarchy. That's what race is for. She says, Dr. Edwards, that race is an appearance-based means of assessing and valuing others. Do you see the difference between ethnicity and culture and race? It's when you take the color of someone's skin or the texture of their hair and you give them a value of either greater or less based upon this appearance. The colonial world in which America began to emerge in the Enlightenment was formed around, in a sense, this concept of race. How else can you enslave millions of people unless you can look at the color of someone's skin and value them as less than? How else can you enact genocide over First Nations peoples unless you see this person because of the color of their skin, because of their background as less than and you as greater? This is what racism is. It's valuing people based upon the color of their skin. Jim Artisby says that it's not just prejudice, it's power. You can be prejudiced against someone's culture or against someone's ethnicity, but having power in this, power over others, is what makes prejudice racist. One thing that is most common and yet misguided as we attempt to combat these, these issues in the church is, is trying to build this unity through uniformity. Instead of what we see in the scriptures saying, if you want to belong, we all have to be alike. If you want to belong here, you have to become like me. It reinforces the sameness as a means of conflict resolution. It's to say, I don't see color. We're going to be a colorblind sort of church. And the reason we do this is because we think if we just push that aside, push aside the history, push aside the things that have brought us to this moment, and just said, no, if we put it over there, we don't have to deal with it, and that means there's no conflict and everything is fine. In a way, this is the culmination of what we see in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 11. When sin comes in Genesis 3, it culminates in what? the Tower of Babel, as they built this giant, huge monument to their greatness. And you notice in this moment that this is is a place of sameness. Everyone is speaking the same language. Everyone is just alike. And in that sameness, they build this monument to their pride. So what does God do? He scatters them and in the process creates multiple languages And cultures, even in God's judgment against them, he gives us the opportunity for good news because the very next chapter, Genesis 12, is Abraham. Abraham comes along and and God calls him out of his people, calls him to go to a place he does not know. And listen to this promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. God makes it clear, I'm blessing you, you are my people, but you're not just blessed for you. You are blessed to be a blessing, you are blessed to be a blessing to every nation and people. Now fast forward our story to Pentecost, where we see the Holy Spirit fall on the church. And what's the first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, People begin speaking in tongues, different languages. It says, when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? It's basically, in that time, like saying, aren't these rednecks? Aren't these the country people? How do they know this stuff? It says, then how how is it that each of us hears them in our native language we hear them declaring the wonders of god in our own tongues when the holy spirit falls and forms the church at pentecost he does not erase difference he empowers difference he empowers the church to speak out into that difference into every nation this is Babel in reverse that's what pentecost is what we see in Genesis 11 turned on its head as the Holy Spirit empowers us for every nation and language. And just for a second, I want you to think about Paul's here, and think about how beautiful this could be. Think about how beautiful this will be. Look at some pictures here—just some believers across the world. Think about the day that will come. And we're spending eternity with Nigerian. Christians. We're singing and dancing to the songs of praise of Latin American Brazilian believers. We are sitting across the table in eternity from Indian Christians who are there because of persecution. We are sitting at a table with these old saints who have spent their lives in cathedrals in Europe. Just streets of gold that we see but also the vibrant colors The worship of every language that will await us one day. The Holy Spirit does not erase our differences. He empowers them. He empowers them for what they are. I love Jamar Tisby says that human beings do not simply bear God's image individually, but collectively as well. Each people group with their various languages, dress, foods, clothing, and customs reveal a finite facet of God's infinite diversity. No single people group can adequately reflect the glory of God. Rather, we need the diversity of present and the multiplicity of nations and tribes to paint a more complete portrait of God's splendor. Do you hear what he is saying? He's saying when we get Every nation, tribe, and tongue, we get to see more of the beauty of God, not less. We get to see God in people that are not like us in ways that we don't see in those who are like us. And I don't know about you, my friends, but I I can't wait till that day. As i was studying this this week, I was just thinking, I cannot wait till strangers transform into brothers and sisters. I can't wait to, to hear the stories of believers that I would otherwise miss. I can't wait to meet martyrs and missionaries and mothers who have remained faithful through so much hardship, the beautiful family of God coming together as one, every nation, tribe, people, and language. And now they are Family family. You may not see them now, but the beautiful truth is, is we don't have to wait because they are family right now. They are family here and now. We do not have to wait to the future to seek and to serve within this reality of every tribe, nation, and tongue. We can seek this out. We can do it step by step, day by day together, moving towards that future and bring it into the present. Now, hear me, I'm not saying this from some sort of very blind, naive, kumbaya idealism. I know the world we live in. I know this reality that we inhabit. Some days it feels like the church of every tribe, it's impossible in a tribalistic world where we feel like we're more divided than ever. Now, listen, I've talked a lot around here about political idolatry. I've talked about rejecting the voices of politicians and pundits who seek to divide, who seek to teach you to hate your enemies, who who further alienate us and the world around us. But what I don't touch on enough, I, I believe, is that the good yet distorted desires that are actually forming this tribalism, it's because we're looking for something good. It's a good desire that each one of us are seeking out. Deep down, we're all in this search for identity, we're in a search for belonging, and we are in a search for purpose. And as the world becomes a more global community, as as we become very much where we know what's happening in an instant on the other side of the world, fear enters into the picture. The global community, the institutions, the families that we have been a part of us we've sort of rejected those things we've trusted in individualism we have pushed aside the foundational institutions and things that we've known before these desires even in this don't go away we still long for identity we still long for belonging we still long for purpose we need something worth living for and listen that is human that's what makes us human So what you have as a result is when you have lost a sense of belonging in your faith, in a church, in your family of origin, you go looking for it elsewhere. You go looking for it wherever you can. That's just why we see the rise of political tribalism and nationalism and even the rise of white supremacy because we need identity. We desperately need belonging, we need some sort of purpose, and when we find a measure of that in our politics, when we find a measure of that in our nationality or our racial hierarchy, this idea of transgressing boundaries and coming together, it feels like a threat. It feels like a threat to who I fundamentally am. So when you start talking about a church of every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, Even if I hear this referenced in the scriptures, I can start to get a little bit of a sense of fear, because that idea threatens the sense of identity that I have formed. Creates this constant cycle of culture wars. Are you not tired of culture wars? I'm weary of culture wars, constant condemnation, constant enemy making, constant virtue signaling for your tribe. And here's the hard truth, my friends. A lot of the people that are caught up in these tribalistic bubbles that we see across this nation are sitting in church in this nation right now at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. It's this form of Christianity that, that allows Jesus to be an accessory of the identity that we have already built. To be the, the, the tag along to my political aspirations. To be the mascot for our side. So we defend against those who we fear are taking that life from us, taking that belonging from us, taking that purpose. From us. My friends, when we look at the church in Acts, Acts chapter 1, we see this immediately, that that Jesus, he promises the Holy Spirit, and the disciples would be witnesses. It says in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then what? To the ends of the earth. Jerusalem and Judea, those are people like them. Samaria, those are the people they did not like. And even beyond, out beyond the people they did not like, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to push you outward to every tribe, nation, people, and language. This would not be a church that is confined to one ethnicity. This would not be a church that is com- confined to one language or nation. And you see that today. The Christian faith is the most globally diverse religion. You see it in people in Africa. You see it in people in South America. In fact, those are the places it's actually go- Instead of here. From the beginning, we see in the New Testament that God is intentionally forming a new kind of people. Peter writes this. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now listen to these words. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. I want to say that again, because I want, to, I want to hear it, not just hear it, but hear it. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy something has fundamentally changed within us in Christ. When we are saved into Christ, we are not just saved into individually in Christ, we're saved into the Christ family, we're saved into the church, we're saved into a new belonging. We see this, a chosen people, identity, a holy nation, belonging. A priesthood, a royal priesthood purpose. We have found a life that runs deeper than our national identities, runs deeper than our languages, runs deeper than our families of origin. It goes deeper than blood. We have found a purpose that flows from the very heart of God. This is what it means to be the church, to step into the belonging and the identity and the purpose of Jesus Christ together, not with, just with people that look like you and act like you and think like you and vote like you, but with every tribe, with every nation, with every people, with every language. This is a new identity. This is a new sense of belonging. This is a new and deeper, deeper purpose. And let me put this a little stronger, I think. If we find deeper roots outside of that, we're missing it. We should have a deeper-rooted sense of belonging with a socialist Christian in Norway or an African bishop in Sudan, or the charismatic mother that's leading the church in South America, or the church that's hosting and hiding in Iran, or the Anglican grandmother in Scotland sitting alone by herself, or the Christian family that's trying to cross the border from Mexico, that, that is family. And we should look at our fellow brothers and sisters of Christ across the spectrum. That should be a deeper sense of family than what we find in our nationality or our culture. When I look at those people, I don't see what they tell me to see. I see what Jesus tells me to see, which is those are your family. Michael Gorman, he puts it this way. He says this beautiful vision of a great multitude that no one can count from every nation from all tribes and peoples and language is or should be at the heart of the church's self-understanding this is what God is up to in the world if Christians around the globe truly understood themselves as part of this international community and fully embraced that membership as their primary source of identity and mission and allegiance, it is doubtful that so many Christians could maintain their deep-seated national allegiances or their suspicions of foreigners. It fundamentally changes how we love our neighbor when we come into Christ, not just in our present, but in the view the vision of our future. And if you hear this and hear and think it's political, it is, but it's political in the sense that it's biblical. That it is, just like we're talking about with this study, it's rooted in the scriptures, it's rooted in the people that are being formed here together. This is the truest sense of our family, the people of God. And this should disrupt allegiances. This should disrupt the way I've seen people before. It should disrupt my culturally and ethnically and racially homogenous life and cause me to think, if that's what it's going to be in the future, why am I not seeking that in the present? Why are we not doing the sacrificial things it takes in order to make this happen? I'm a bit of a history nerd and I like shows on PBS, I'm just gonna put that out there, yes, in Jesus' name, Um, I like this show called Find Your Roots, you ever watch that show? Find Your Roots, it's got Henry Louis Gates, And, and if you've never seen this show before, it's because you're probably cooler than me, and also, it's because it's just... Incredible! You need to watch it. It's it's. He goes and he takes these genealogists and, and researchers, and he finds these individuals. Sometimes they've done like celebrities, but sometimes it's just ordinary people, and and they use these resources to help them find their ancestry, find where they have come from, their their, and sometimes very very far back family history. Who's made them? Uh, who they are today, sometimes it's, it's very emotional. It's fascinating at the same time because you see how who they are, their, their, their understanding of their identity and their, their sense of belonging and purpose fundamentally changes because of who they found out they have come from, the story that they have inhabited. I thought about that show this week and I wondered what if we could do that in reverse? What if we could see our future? What if we could see the family that's still to come? And if we saw the family that is still to come, how would that fundamentally change how we live and see ourselves in the present? We found our roots, our future roots. We have found what our family looks like. We look at Revelation 7 and we see what's ahead. We see the family that is coming. And just like when we look in the past, when we look in the future, it should fundamentally transform the way we see ourselves in the present. It should fundamentally shift the what we seek together here in the present. Listen, my friends, we have had justice and diversity. and. Racial reconciliation as a central component of our church from the very beginning. And listen, we are not naive to think that this is easy. We are not naive to look at this room right now and know we have work to do. We're not naive in thinking this is a two-month project and thinking this is just a couple events away from fixing everything or just thinking that we'll do that kind of music and then everybody will show up because you can get people in the same room, but that doesn't mean you've created a new kind of family. I heard a pastor say one time, you won't have a diverse church until you have a diverse dinner table. That's when things begin to shift. And listen, we may feel like that's far away right now. We may feel like we have so much work to do. This is a long obedience in the same direction. This isn't a two-month project. This is a 20-year project. This is far beyond what we can do in a small amount of time. And so We commit together to just take that next step. This class we're doing, this is just one more step. Relationships that we build, one more step. Inviting friends into our homes, building relationships with people who are not like us, taking one step. It's one small step at a time in the long obedience in the same direction. And that's what I want to pray for us is that when it gets hard, and it will, and it will, we'll press through. When the voices outside us are telling us that we shouldn't be talking about this, this is a distraction from the gospel, we'll press through. Because we see this is the fruit of the gospel. This is the fruit of what God is doing in our past it's the fruit of what god is doing in our future and by his grace as we step in courage it will be the fruit of what we see in the present lord jesus i want to pray for courage and resilience it can feel like this is a mountain that is too big to climb I know in the midst of this, I just want to name this. I know a lot of us have compassion fatigue. I know a lot of us are weary. The last few years with pandemics and elections and uproars everywhere. It's we're weary. The thought of stepping outside of just surviving feels like too much. So, Lord, I pray for fresh wind. Pray for renewal within us. Renew us, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in us to seek this life together. And God, where we need to repent, both as individuals and as a church, I pray, Holy Spirit, you lead us into that by your wisdom, by your grace, not from a place of condemnation. You don't speak from condemnation. You speak with an invitation into something so much more than we could ever So give us courage in this, Jesus. Speak today in your name. Amen.